Well, good morning, beloved. It is my honor and great pleasure um, to open the Word with you this morning and to see what it has to say to us. We are finding ourselves going through the book of Luke. We like to go through books of the Bible here at Restoration Road, and my, uh, Pastor Mike has set out an ambitious plan to go through the Gospel of Luke, the longest gospel in our New Testament Um, And we find ourselves this morning in chapter 3, so I invite you to turn in your scriptures to Luke chapter 3, as we'll be looking at the first 20 verses. This is a little bit of a transition in Luke's gospel. Um, The first two chapters were very introductory in nature. Um, You're aware, probably, and hopefully of the fact that of the four gospels that we have in our Bible... Only two of them have said anything at all about the birth of Jesus, the Gospel of Matthew and Luke's Gospel. Um, The other two Gospels, Mark and John, say nothing about the birth of Jesus. Not that it was unimportant or we should think otherwise, but the fact that it's only in two of the four Gospels is indicative of maybe its relative importance where the the text we come to this morning of John the Baptist, all four Gospels have something to say about John the Baptist. So in terms of just uh, uh, intensive uh, ideas that are focused on one subject, we need and ought to pay attention to what is said about John the Baptist. So far in Luke's Gospel, Luke has made a point to give us an introduction, and he has given us an introduction um, through the focusing his attention on four people, two women and two babies. There were other peripheral characters, but essentially the first two chapters are about two women and two babies. It's interesting in the Roman culture that first century Palestine found itself in, the Roman culture had a hierarchy of worth and of value and of dignity. At the very bottom were slaves then babies, then women, then men, then Roman citizens, then Roman soldiers. I find it rather interesting that Luke focuses his attention on two women and two babies. In fact, as you look at the whole of Luke's gospel and into his second work, the book of Acts, you'll see his attention continues to be focused on those that are deemed insignificant, less worthy. He will talk more about women than any other gospel. And in a culture that almost dehumanized the importance and the dignity of women, it was revolutionary what he had to say. And in the first two chapters, as he focused on Mary and Elizabeth and their babies, John, and Jesus, we kind of get the idea that Luke has something important to say about things that maybe get overlooked, that aren't really deemed important, but really significantly are. So when we come to chapter 3 this morning, Luke kind of turns a page. He's introduced to us to John the Baptist and Jesus, and now in the next two chapters through the middle of chapter 4, he's going to talk about those two individuals and their preparation for ministry. How did they prepare? 
for ministry. And then he'll get into the details of mostly uh, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's read the text together, starting again, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. Follow along with me, please. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysidius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation... And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is coming is he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodotus, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added, to this, added this to them all, and he locked up John. In prison. Well, there's a lot there, isn't there? Many years ago, um, Philip Yancey wrote an intriguing book called I Was Just Wondering. About 90% of that book was just a series of questions that he was pondering. You see, a curious mind, I believe, is a pathway to wisdom. And that book long ago put me on a path of asking good questions. And I think a good question asker is essential coming to Scripture, for you need to ask the, test, the text 
a lot of significant questions. So I've come up with a series of questions that I initially just asked myself about this text, and hopefully I will try to answer them. But these are the questions that I had when I first read this text. First, why does Dr. Luke start this section with a history lesson? Was John a prophet, or was he just a street evangelist? And what's the difference? What's the significance of John being in the wilderness? Luke quotes from Isaiah, was John an Old Testament prophet, or was he a New Testament one? He proclaimed and performed a baptism of repentance. Was baptism something that John invented, or were people familiar with it already? Was John a Nazarite or just an ascetic? And does it matter? And why did he call some people a bucket of snakes? And what about the wrath to come? What, what was that all about? Wasn't there any advantage to being a Jew, a descendant of Abraham under the covenant? What is John talking about when he mentions trees and axes, roots and fire? What's good fruit? Luke selects three groups of people who respond to John's message. Is there any reason Luke selects these? Why not others? Was John the baptizer a successful prophet? Did he accomplish what Gabriel said in his announcement to his dad, Zechariah? Is there a difference between being successful and being faithful? What's the significance of straps on sandals, and how does this show humility? What does John mean when he says Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire? Is this another form or mode of baptism? And are there three different kinds of baptisms, water, Holy Spirit, and fire? What are we to make of the threshing floor picture? What does it mean? And what was the good news that John preached? What did the audience have to repent of? And what does repentance mean? Why was Herod mad at John, and why did John reprove him? And why did John have doubts about Jesus being the Messiah? All right, we've got our job cut out for us this morning, don't we? There's some assignments for the curious among us. Answer these questions. They're, each and every one of them could probably be a thesis in and of their own. But we have this section to deal with this morning, so let's get off to the races, shall we? I've kind of outlined this section, these 20 verses, into three parts, and I'll try to take them each separately and go through the text and hopefully answer some of these imponderable questions that we have. The first one, the first outline, is that John comes as the Old, Te as the Old Testament and Gabriel had promised, the first six verses. Here's the historical setting that Luke gives us. And you can't really read this without just realizing that there's an irony here. It's as if, remember, those of you who are old enough, 1996 in Chicago, it was the most fantastic year. The Bears won the Super Bowl. They were down in New Orleans playing the New England Patriots. The defensive front of the Bears called the Monsters of the Midway. You remember them. In the first half of that Super Bowl game, they kept New England to minus 19 yards of offense. It was an incredible game. Can you imagine the announcer announcing the front line of the Bears and all these linebackers, and they're the, the best of the best? And then he says, the opposing team today 
are the Brookdale Warriors from the assisted living. <laughs> and you go, wait a minute, something's going on here. That's kind of Luke's idea here. He starts with a history lesson, and he talks about and mentions the most important, powerful people in the known world. Caesar, all the tetrarchs, and the highest-ranking officials in Judaism. And then he says, the word of God came to John in the wilderness. Oh, it's dripping with irony. It's dripping with almost sarcasm, like to be ignored, to be in the, in the most insignificant place. Something is happening. Something is moving. Pay attention. 400 years of silence were about to be broken. What's significant of the wilderness? The wilderness is a motif in the, in, throughout the, the whole of Bible as being a place of God's testing. Jesus went 40 days into the wilderness to be tempted and tested by his adversary, the devil. The children of Israel wandered 40 years in the Sinai wilderness so that their, their faith, their, their, their outlook about the promised land could be tested. There were 400 years of silence between Malachi and the coming of John where God, Jehovah God, tested the resilience of his people through silence. John is in the wilderness, a place of testing, a place of resolve and a word comes to him and it says that he went to all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin this is kind of a of, of a summary statement of John's whole ministry and then Luke will dissect it a little bit and get into get into some details but in summary fashion this capsulizes John the Baptist's ministry. He went throughout the Jordan region proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The Jordan River flows north to south from the Sea of Galilee, Lake Tiberias in some versions, straight down into the Dead Sea. And it encompasses a wide, wide variety of geographic locations and tundra and kinds of climate types. It starts very lush and bountiful and fruitful, and it goes to the closer to the Dead Sea. It gets rocky and stony and mountainous, and, and it encompasses this whole spectrum of kinds of, of, of area. This is where John was. This is where he's, he, he had his ministry. And it says, Luke says, that he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This was not new things. This was kind of like Old Testament prophets would do. They proclaimed a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. None of these ideas were necessarily New Testament. They were just old ideas brought to life again. Repentance. Not a new word. They were familiar with what the word repentance mean. The Greek word and its Hebrew equivalent simply mean to turn around, to change your mind, to change directions, to do an about face. If you're going in one direction, you repent and you go in another direction. What was the change that he was advocating? What was the change of perspective that he was wanting? A change of 
of orientation about the forgiveness of your sin. So it had to do with people's actions. It had to do with their behavior. It had to do with a change of their mindset and a recognition of their sin. I would have loved to have seen a little YouTube video of John the Baptist preaching. We have ideas, you know, embedded in our head. We have ideas of what he looked like. Other gospel writers were a little bit more focused on the clothes that he wore, the things that he ate, the length of his hair. Luke doesn't have anything to say about that. That's not important to Luke at all. He almost sidesteps it. I think he's aware of it. But Luke tends and his intent is on John's message. That's what's important. It's not his looks. That might draw attention. Not his lifestyle for what it's worth. It's his message that Dr. Luke is bringing front and foremost in front of us. And he is saying in summary fashion that Luke, that John is proclaiming a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, why is he doing that? Because this is what was prophesied by not just the, Gab not just the angel Gabriel to his dad, but going back to the Old Testament in Malachi, he uh, has a commission and a, and, a, and a prophecy about him. Just to recall again what Gabriel told Zechariah in chapter 1 concerning his son John. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That was his mantle of ministry. That was placed upon him. And you have to believe in the absolute sovereignty of God that from conception, John had this mantle, this duty, this privilege placed upon him from sovereign Yahweh. Did he have a choice? Could he have turned to the left or to the right? Could he have gone otherwise and not prepared himself for this ministry? I don't think so, because God is sovereign. And God sovereignly placed this man in this position for this purpose to be the forerunner, to be the, the, the path burner of Jesus. The second part of our text, after he well, just let me recall again what Luke is. He quotes from Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. You, you almost can't read this section without hearing the music of Handel's Messiah playing in the background, for this was a very predominant part of that orchestral work. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill made low. This was beautiful, poetic language to just describe what John was doing. He was making the rough places smooth. He was making the valleys level so that all flesh can see the salvation of God. This was his job. This was his duty. This was his 
work that he performed. And he asked people to repent of their sins, to change direction, and to go in the, in the, in the path of forgiveness. From the earliest accounts in Genesis, what does man, what has man always done when he's confronted with sin? Blame others. What did Adam say? The woman you gave me, she made me eat. Oh. We say, oh, Adam, that's silly. You, you did it. You did it. But if we're honest, don't we all look for scapegoats of our behavior? We all want to blame somebody else for our misdeeds. I'm not at fault. It really is somebody, somebody made me do it. I think John's message was one of take personal responsibility, people. Understand you and you alone are responsible for your behavior. Ouch. Ouch. That's uncomfortable. That's unsettling. I don't want to go there. Many didn't. But some did. Some did. The second section in this, verses 7 through 15, is more of a detailed. He starts with general statements, and then he goes into some specifics. He said, therefore, verse 7, to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. I kind of put my own spin on that, you bucket of snakes. Is that the thing to say as, a, as an evangelist trying to win hearts and souls? Matthew adds a little parenthetical comment here that he was addressing the scribes and the Pharisees with this pejorative term. Luke just kind of leaves it open-ended. You brood of vipers, you bucket of snakes, you seeming serpents, who warned you about the wrath to come? Well, we don't have all of John's message in front of us. We don't know exactly what the wrath to come that he was talking about. But most commentators, and I think it's an undeniable fact that John, looking back to the Old Testament, realizing that Malachi in particular, Isaiah in particular, talked about his ministry and his mantle of commission that Yahweh had given him. He was the prophet to announce the coming an almighty day of the Lord. And oh, you can't read any of the Old Testament prophets without hearing reference made to the terrible day of the Lord. Take Zechariah, for instance, chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out to exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west by, the, by a very wide valley." 
so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, Isaiah king of Judah, when the Lord my God will come with all the holy ones with him. Wonderful, graphic pictures of the day of the Lord, what it looks like. Malachi 4, 1 through 6. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will stumble. The day that is coming shall be set ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name... The son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under your soles of your feet. On that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I command him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. I kind of think that was a little bit of John's message. And it was probably very fearful to the people that heard it. Why would they think that the day of the Lord is imminent? Why would they think that there was a coming, this coming judgment was, was just around the corner? I'm not exactly sure, but I have some ideas. During this, the 400 years of silence, you remember the exiles returned from Babylon and from Assyria, and they came back to a desolate Jerusalem. The city had been plundered. The temple had been destroyed. The walls were broken down. Nehemiah, one of the returned exiles, was taken, had taken the task of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. Ezra, the priest, came back along with others, and they helped to rebuild the temple. It was a, uh, just a glimmer of its former glory, but after it was reconstructed, it was functional. And Ezra came back and held that wonderful, wonderful worship service. If you've read Ezra, you know what happened in the people's response to the reading of the law in the temple again. And it was a beautiful scene. The returned exiles came back to their land and rebuilt their houses. And they were allowed to come back and, and start life again. Well, the Assyrians soon fell to Alexander the Great. And the Greeks now ruled the known world. And the Greeks came to exert their influence in the Middle East. And they were on a mission to Hellenize the Middle East. They wanted to make it all Greek culture. And they came into the temple. This isn't recorded in our Old Testament. This is that intertestamental period. But the Greeks came in to the temple in Jerusalem and erected a statue of Zeus. That didn't satisfy them completely. They brought in pigs and sacrificed pigs on the altar in the temple before the statue of Zeus. It so enraged the Jews. If you know the story, Judas Maccabees and his brothers mounted a rebellion and over a series of years were successful in driving out the Greeks from that part of the Middle East only for a short period of time. But the nation existed for about 150 years, and they thrived as an independent nation. 
until the Romans came and put them under Roman occupation and Roman rule. And again, they were allowed to live their lives, but still with limits. So they were a subjugated people. They were an oppressed people. They were constantly looking for the promised deliverer, the promised Messiah to come and alleviate their suffering. They had this picture of the Messiah. Remember Pastor Bill when he led us through several sections of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied of the coming servant, the coming suffering servant, but reigning king. And they saw the Messiah as a reigning reigning ruler that would alleviate them from oppression. Here was John's message, I believe. He saw the coming Messiah in this day of the Lord bringing with him these wonderful judgmental actions and releasing Israel from oppression. And John was preparing the way. The wrath is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Prepare yourself. But that message was not heeded, was not observed, was not received by all. So he turns to the crowd. He says, you pit of snakes. Who really warned you? You, you're not accepting this. You're not repenting. You, you leaders of us, you religious rulers, who warned you? And don't tell me that you're safe just because you're part of the covenant of Abraham. Don't say that you can slide under the tent curtain just because you're circumcised. No, that doesn't bear any weight in God's economy. In fact, these stones in front of you could be raised up to be his servants if you think you have an advantage over these stones. John, as well as Jesus, discerned really early in their ministries that there were opposition forces that were never going to receive what they had to say. In a few chapters, you'll remember, I'm kind of going around the corner a little bit, and I hope I'm not going to steal somebody's thunder. But in the next few chapters, you remember, Jesus goes to Nazareth, his hometown, and he goes into the synagogue there, and he takes the scroll of the book of Isaiah and opens it and starts to read. And he reads about himself. He reads about his ministry. He reads about his purpose. And he tells the audience, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. What? This is Joseph's son. This is Mary's kid. What, 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 who does he think he is? And they challenge him. Remember his response? He says, you know, back in the day, Elijah, in the midst of a three-and-a-half-year severe famine, he could have performed, this is reading in between the lines, it doesn't really say this, but it means this, he could have gone to Israel and provided for them, but he didn't. He went out of the country and performed miracles for a neighboring person, not a Jew. And you remember Elijah. He also went to a widow. There were many widows in, in Israel at the time, and he could have ministered to them, but he went out of the country and ministered to a, a widow of a foreign country. And they were incensed. The audience was incensed and chased him out of the synagogue. What, I, what he saw coming 
what Jesus saw coming and later unwrapped was that the message of John, the proclamation of John, was not going to be accepted and received by all. It was going to be rejected by the rulers and the authorities. In Luke 11, which we will get to, Jesus laments over Jerusalem. Oh, he says, I wish I could have taken you like a hen takes her chicks under her wings, but you would not. You would not. Woe to you, scribes. Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, lawyers who place burdens on people that you yourselves are not willing to accept. Woe to you, enlightened folk. Woe. The nation, as it were, there were some that did. The nation as a whole did not accept John's message, did not accept Jesus' message. There were some that did. John says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here's illustration again, figurative language. If you remember Psalm 1, blessed is a man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. He is like a tree that is planted on the shore of a brook. It will grow beautifully and produce fruit in its season. A tree was described by the psalmist as someone in right relationship with Jehovah God and flourishing under their love and delight of the law, and they produce fruit in its season. But here, John the Baptist says, the dead tree, the axe is coming, and it's already laid at the root. It's already laid. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be delivered. The tree's going to be cut down. What's he saying? You who reject this message, you who walk away unrepentant, still bear your sin, still come under the judgment. And the fire is a picture of judgment. The fire will burn the tree that is cut down. And then the crowds asked him, verse 10, what then shall we do? There's three groups of people here that John Luke actually picks as, 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 as response, as responders to John's message. The crowds, tax collectors, and soldiers. This was the right way to respond to John's message of repentance. The crowd say, what then shall we do? And he answered the crowds, whoever has two tunics, let him share with one who has none. Whoever has food, do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said, teacher, what shall we do? Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? Do not exhort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. What's he saying to these people? Here's good fruit. Here's good fruit. You remember the story of Zacchaeus, don't you? That's later on again in the book of, of Luke. Jesus comes to Zacchaeus and has lunch with him. And Zacchaeus is marvelously saved. And he responds with wonderful fruit. I'm not gonna, you know the story. I'm not going to spoil it. But the crowd say, what shall we do? 
bear good fruit. Again, the fruit is produced by a living tree. You don't produce fruit and there work your way back and try to give life to a tree. A good apple doesn't come on a dead stick. What am I saying? Don't try to perform fruit to become good. If you're good, you perform, you produce good fruit. In other words, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if your sins have been forgiven and you walk in newness of life, fruit is produced in your life. Fruit is produced in your ministry. It's not the other way around. Don't try to pull up yourself by your bootstrap. Oh, I've got to produce fruit. I've got, to, I've got to do something good. Therefore, become good. No. If you are good, you'll produce good fruit. That's the order of events. Tax collectors. One of the most despised and hated group of individuals. Listen how, as we go through the book of Luke, look how many times Luke talks about tax collectors. It'll be over and over and over again. Again, one of those groups of people that ought to be ignored by a good Jew, but Luke will make mention of them over again. Tax collectors came. What should we do? Collect no more than you are authorized to do. There were a whole series of different levels of tax collectors that Rome had. The the authority of tax collecting came from Rome to its governors. The governors then issued certificates of, of how much tax and what kind of tax and when to collect tax to their governors and so on, down to the tetrarchs. And then the, the, each of the individual cities would go in a... Uh, uh, almost they would, they would bid for the position of being a tax collector. Why? Because it was lucrative. It was lucrative. They could always add a surcharge on anything that they were doing to make their profits margins a little bit bigger than they were authorized to do. And as a result of that, they were hated. Nothing the population could do about it. They weren't elected. There was no election coming up to oust them from office. It wasn't a democracy. They were appointed. And so they were hated, especially the Jews who filled these positions. They were hated even more because they were onerously enslaving, as it were, their own countrymen. And his advice, his, his exhortation to the tax collectors, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers, these were not Roman soldiers, these were probably Jewish soldiers, as it were, a police force they were maybe policemen that were in charge of protecting the tax collectors because they kind of came as a group. Um, they, they think of it as a civil, they, they were civil servants, as it were, to keep order in the city. Um, they come. What shall we do? Do not exhort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. I was in Russia in 1995 visiting a Bible school there, and we drove to town, and there was a big roundabout that we had to go through, and stationed about every two hours on the, on the if you divide the roundabout into a time clock at noon, at two o'clock, four o'clock, six o'clock, there was a police officer standing there with a baton, 
and he was just watching the traffic go by. And every now and then he would put out his baton and signal to a car that would pull over to the side of the roundabout and there would be a discussion. And I would look, we entered this roundabout and I saw three or four cars. This is really strange. Well, the driver who was taking us in, the director of this Bible school, was explaining what was going on here. It was a shakedown. The police officers, well, they were looking for not the Russian-made cars. They know there was no money to be had there. They would look for the Mercedes, the Beamers, the Audis. And they knew that there were maybe some foreign nationals that were visiting, and they would signal that car. Well, what did I do wrong, officer? Well, your tire's not inflated properly. Or they would come up with whatever. They were looking for bribes. They were looking for payments. I'll let you go. They didn't come right out and say it, but everyone knew this is what they were doing. Heavy-handed, soldiers with authority. John says, no more threats. No more false accusations. No more intimidations. Just do your job the right way. What's the big picture here? What's the big, what is the good fruit? Bearing good fruit of repentance. John is saying, it's seen in loving your neighbor, conducting your business affairs with honesty and integrity, and using your social positions to foster human flourishing and be content with what you have. Ouch, again. Love your neighbor. Conduct your business affairs with honesty and integrity. Use your social positions to foster human flourishing and be content. There was what we would probably call a revival that took place. As people came to John the Baptist and his ministry, people were convicted of sin, repented of sin, and were baptized, were identified with his message. Have we ever seen revival? Have you ever seen personal revival? Have you ever seen civil revival? I don't know that I have. I've seen personal revival. I've seen it on a small scale, but not society-wide. Is it possible? Could it happen? The year was 1741. The pastor of the Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts, was a wonderful preacher, a diligent student of the Word. And he had seen God's hand bringing salvations to his church, but he was unsettled. He saw increasing worldliness in Northampton, Massachusetts. He saw most particularly young people, young people that weren't coming to service anymore, that they were engaged in idle affairs that weren't profitable. This man, of course, was Jonathan Edwards. And as he prayed, Lord, what should I do? How can I address this? He was burdened with the task and followed through with it in leading a series of sermons in his church about justification by faith. And he preached this diligently for about three months, and he saw what he saw 
what he described as flickers of, of new life coming to his congregation. He continued to be in prayer for his city and for his church. And more and more, he saw young people coming and being interested in spiritual things. They would stay after service and ask him questions about the text that he had preached on. He saw this as a wonderful sign and a sign of new life coming to his community. In the fall of 1771, he wrote and delivered probably his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. If you haven't read it, I would look it up on YouTube or see the video of it. No, there's no video of it. But you, you could get the text of it because it's in printed form. It's a, it's a marvelous, ser, uh, marvelous sermon. It has been character, caricatured as hellfire and damnation. And it was just, it, it's been lampooned. But I don't believe you'll walk away with that impression if you were to read it with an open mind. Yes, he talks a lot about hell. And he has some very graphic pictures, word pictures that he writes in his sermon. He talks about man walking his life on a silk thread of a spider that at any time it could give way and a man unrepentant would then spend eternity in hell. It was just a very confrontive sermon about the realities of hell and the need to repent. He preached this in Northampton, and again, it added to the movement that was already happening. It, the movement, this move, move, movement, characterized now as the first great awakening in the colonies, spread throughout the colonies. One colony, the colony of Connecticut, was not affected hardly at all by this movement. So there was a church in a town called Enfield that asked Jonathan Edwards to come one Sunday and preach this sermon in Enfield, which he did, 1743. The pastor of that church, Stephen Williams, in his diary made this note about Jonathan's sermon. Before the sermon was done, he said, there was a great moaning and crying out through the whole house, what shall I do to be saved? Oh, am I going to hell? Oh, what shall I do for Christ? And so forth. So that the minister was obliged to stop. The shrieks and cries were piercing and amazing. After some time of waiting, the congregation went still so that a prayer was made. And after that, we descended from the pulpit and discoursed with the people, some in one place and some in another, and amazing and astonishing, the power of God is seen. And several souls were hopefully wrought upon that night and all the cheerfulness and pleasantness of their countenance that received comfort. Oh, that God would strengthen and comfort their new faith. We sang a hymn and prayed and dispersed the assembly. There was a, a revival in our colonies. George Whitfield would come later from England um, John Wesley were all involved in this movement, um, and it was a marvelous thing that happened in the, in, in the colonies. Incidentally, it was the same year that Jonathan delivered this sermon in Enfield. Over in England, George Frederick Handel was writing the tune to Messiah's Handel. 
Again, there was a movement of God about in England and in the colonies. Um, and it was just a f really a fascinating time in our American history. And if you don't know anything about it, I would encourage you to just do a little reading on it. It's really quite a fascinating thing that happened. I think something like that happened under the ministry of John the Baptist. People came. They sought him out to hear his message. They came to him. He wasn't there in people's face. They came into the wilderness to hear his message and to hear what he had to say. In fact, even Herod, King Herod, <laughs> had a run-in with John. But Matthew says Herod liked to listen to John, enjoyed listening to John. Tongue-in-cheek? I don't know. But his message was appealing to many. The third section of this passage before us this morning, verses 15 through 20, um, I've entitled, John Promises a Greater One Coming. Through John's ministry, obviously people were curious. People were in expectation, Luke says, and all were questioning whether John might be the Christ. And he said, no, I, I, I'm not. I baptize you simply with water. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose strap of the sandals I'm not worthy to untie, untie and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. There's a whole lot here. Just real briefly. Again, the idea of baptism, the, 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 the symbol of baptism, the, um, the, 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 the act of being baptized was not something John invented. Um, Judaism had baptism part of their rites and rituals. Other sects had baptism. It was just a rather common expression what it meant was that the person being baptized was somehow offering a commitment, offering a, 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 a physical representation of their devotion to something. In this case, it was John's message of forgiveness. The people being baptized were identifying with John's message. I, am then, I commit myself to this message. I dedicate myself to what you're saying. I am part of what you are saying. That's and then the symbolic representation of that was the mode of baptism. But John, being kind of in between testaments, wasn't really a full Old Testament prophet, but he wasn't fully a New Testament one either. Luke, in the book of Acts, in chapter 19, the apostle Peter comes to the town of Ephesus, and he meets up with a group of people that were disciples of John. And they said, well, did you receive the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit? They said, we don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. Well, what baptism have you received? We received the baptism of John. Well, let me tell you the end of the story. John was just kind of the prelude to the main event. He was the introduction, but he wasn't the full story. People had to continue on. Not that those people in Ephesus rejected Jesus. They just never heard about him. So John's message was one of kind of preparing. This is preliminary. You identify with my message of repentance and, and forgiveness of sin, but let me tell you, there's somebody coming after me who is mightier than I, greater than I. His baptism is different than this. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
what in the world does that mean? <laughs> Again, pay attention to what Luke has to say about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit all the time. Remember with Elizabeth and with Mary, the Holy Spirit descended upon them. The Holy Spirit, da, 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 the Holy, he is just illuminated with the Holy Spirit. He wrote the book of Acts, after all, which chronicles what the Holy Spirit did in the life of the, the, the early church. So here John is saying, one is coming after me mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What does that mean? Is it, are these two different baptisms? Are they one baptism? Are, what, what does this mean? What I think John is referring to, again, goes to the ministry of Jesus. Some people accepted. Some people rejected. Some people became disciples. Other people became opponents. Particularly, in chapter 12 of Luke, Jesus is saying... I came, in verse 49, I came, he says, to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you. Rather, division. Ouch. Ouch. That's a hard chapter. A hard chapter. But it's indicative of the fact that Jesus came and people believed and some opposed. He said, this will, I will divide families. I will divide husbands and wives. I will divide wives and daughters. I will divide husbands and sons. I will make division. That's the division here. Some will receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In other words, will accept Jesus as Messiah Others will receive the baptism of fire, judgment. And then he talks about this threshing floor. The winnowing fork, verse 17, is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the shaft will burn with unquenchable fire. Again, this picture goes back to many Old Testament pictures of judgment, the threshing floor, wheat, chaff. The idea is... In, in Palestine, they would build a barn on, near the top of a hill in the direction of the predominant wind. And when they harvested wheat, they would put a pile of wheat in one end of the open barn and they would thrash it with the, the winnowing fork. They would just try to divide the kernel of wheat, which was the benefit, what they wanted, from the chaff, the, the outer layers of wheat that wasn't valuable. And they would thrash the wheat in one end of the barn. And the wind would pick up the light chaff as it would be separated from the wheat. And it would blow it to the other end of the barn. And there they would build a fire. And the chaff would come and hit the fire and be consumed. That's the idea. That's the picture that John has in mind here of Jesus' ministry. The wheat, the benefit, the good part of what you want to harvest is separated from the chaff, the undesirable, and the chaff is blown into the fire for judgment. John says, the one who is coming after is mightier than I, and I'm not worthy to undo his sandals. What is that talking about? The rabbis 
throughout Jewish history would often gather amongst themselves a group of disciples. They were teachers, after all, teachers of the law, and they would have followers. It was early rabbinic school. And this group of disciples that rabbis would have um, were not obligated but could voluntarily provide services to the rabbi. Under Jewish law, the rabbis were not allowed to receive any fees from their students. They couldn't charge their students, their disciples, for their instructions. But the students could serve, could provide whatever they wanted for their rabbis. And so in Judaism, it was said that the student of a rabbi can provide anything for their rabbi that a household servant could provide. Except one thing, undoing their master's sandals when they came home from traversing the streets of the city. That was an act beneath a disciple. And John says, I'm lower than that. I'm not even worthy to do that act which a disciple of a rabbi was prevented from doing. What a beautiful picture of humility, of, of willingness. One is coming after me who is mightier than I. The other gospels will say, I must decrease and he must increase. This was John's heart. This was what he wanted to see happen. So with many other discourses, he says, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, bought his brother's wife. And other gospels will, will fill in the blank about what is going on with Herod and this illegitimate wife. And again, John was confrontive. He was willing to call an ace an ace, a sin a sin. He was not willing to say, oh, well, you know, Herod's a shaker and a mover. He's a high political figure. I'm going to have to let him skate on this one because I can't confront him. He's, he, he, he's, he's just too powerful. No, he was willing to call a sin a sin. No matter how big or how small, no matter who committed it, no matter when they committed it. In thinking about this issue, I remembered distinctly you, many of you weren't there for this event, but let me tell you, 1994, Bill Clinton's first year as a president, he was riding pretty high in popularity. In fact, the previous, in the fall, August of 1993, Pope John Paul, again, one of the incredible essential characters in moving to bring down the Iron Curtain of the Soviet Union in 1991, John Paul came to a youth rally in Denver um, and spoke to the youth. And, of course, the president, the vice presidents were there, not because they necessarily supported the pope, but because they wanted the recognition of being associated with this wonderful figure. So in January of 1994, still writing on that sentiment, Bill Clinton invited Mother Teresa from Calcutta, India, to come to the White House and to speak at the National Prayer Breakfast, which was held at a hotel in Washington, D.C. The room was filled with 3,000 
people. The media was there. Politicians were there. Bill and his wife Hillary, Vice President Al Gore and his wife Tipper were there. Untypically, the keynote speaker usually sits in the front row with the dignitaries. Mother Teresa wanted nothing to do with that. She kept herself behind a curtain until she was introduced. She was introduced and she came out. You remember the story, don't you? And she started talking. She barely fit above the podium. I'm sure her little frame was shrouded by the podium. And she came out and she started talking about the least of these. What you do to the least of these, you've done to me. Halfway through her prepared remarks, she said this, but I feel that the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion because it is a war against the child, a direct killing of the innocent child, murder by the mother herself. All eyes in the room went to the Clintons. A small applause started in the back of the room and soon enveloped the whole room except for four people. They would have nothing to do with it. Mother Teresa, this frail lady from Calcutta, came to the seat of power in Washington, D.C., and looked at the most powerful man in the world in the face and said, what you stand for, what you promote, is murder. Like John the Baptist, she was willing to call an ace an ace, to call sin, sin. What's our takeaway from this section about John the Baptist? He was not a prophet for us. Gabriel says he was a prophet to the house of Israel. What can we learn from what he has to say? Several things. Someone once said, if a man or a woman of God is not in trouble with others, then he is probably not doing his job. If a man or a woman of God is not in trouble with others, then he's probably not doing his job. I don't know that you could come up with a biblical character that was obedient to God and not in trouble with others. It seemed to go hand in foot. It's never not a bad idea for us to think about eternity. We're consumed, we're enraptured, we're overwhelmed by pressing daily needs, needs of our family, commitment to work, etc., etc. And we think, well, I'll have time later to think about eternity. When I have time to sit and think, it'll be important to me. There's never a better time to think about eternity than right now. Than right now. God may, in fact, call somebody just like he called 
John the Baptist. I believe that John, that John is not entirely unique. God could still call somebody to ministry like he did to John. Could it be you? Could it be your children, your grandchildren? Do you ever pray for such things to happen? Are you ever aware that some things could like, like that could happen? Could God call you into a new area of ministry to start something or to continue something? How do you answer the question, where is God working today? As we start the new year tomorrow, Often this time of the year is one of reflection and planning for the new year. What this last year has meant, what the new year will mean. How would you answer that question? Where is God working in your sphere, in, 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 in the things that you are interested in and involved with? Where is God working? Do you know whose lives are being changed, Who, whose lives are being altered because of God's working? It could be you, could be a spouse, could be a child, could be a co-worker. Where is God working? There's an area, if, if you're wondering, well, what, what's God, God going to call me to this next year? Maybe he'll call you to that area where he's working already, and he needs your assistance or he wants your involvement. Four significant questions to ask. First, what good can you champion? I get this from John's life. He championed what was good. He was a proclaimer of what was good. And there's, there's not a bigger delight in the pastor's life than to baptize somebody. That is just a wonderful event. And John was baptizing people all the time. He was proclaiming good. What good can you champion? There's an application for us. What good can I champion? Am I aware of what good is going on? Secondly, what evil can you resist? What evil can you resist? Third, what's broken that you can restore? And fourth, what's missing that you can contribute? Here's a four-step plan to revolutionize your marriage. What's good? What's evil? What's broken? What's missing? To be proactive instead of reactive. To jump in instead of let life pass you by. Four steps to revolutionize your church. Jump in and proclaim what's good. Resist what's evil. Fix what's broken and contribute what's missing. Four things that'll revolutionize your company that you work for, your business. Zach Williams currently has a wonderful song entitled, Less Like Me. I think he took that <clears throat> verse that John said, he must increase and I must decrease, and he just kind of put contemporary lyrics to. He said this, oh, I have days I lose the fight. Try my best, but I just don't get it right. Where I talk 
a talk that I don't walk and miss the moments right before my eyes, somebody with a hurt that could have been helped, somebody with a hand that could have been held, just when I just can't see past myself, Lord, help me be a little more like mercy, a little more like grace, a little more like kindness, goodness, love, and faith, a little more like patience, a little more like peace, a little more like Jesus, a less, a little less like me. Oh, I want to feed the beggar on the street. I want to be your hands and feet. Freely give what I receive. Lord, help me be. I want to put you first above all else. Love my neighbor as myself. In the moments no one sees, Lord, help me be. A little more like mercy. A little more like grace. A little more like kindness, goodness, love, and faith. A little more like patience. A little more like peace. A little more like Jesus. Oh, a lot less like me. A lot more of living everything I preach. Oh, a little more like Jesus. A lot less of me. Pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray that that would be our prayer today. As we end a year and begin a new one, may this next year be a little bit more like you and a lot less like me in what we are involved with, with what we touch, with what we see, with what we love, with what we cherish, with who we love, with who we cherish. Pray that you would shine. You would reveal your goodness. You would continue to unfold your plan for us as we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.